This is Neil Rockine. I'm Neil Rockine. This is the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. I love cross-examination. When I see particularly good cross-examination, I want to talk about it. And when I see particularly bad cross-examination, I want to hide under a, a, a table. Or I want to you know, I want to reach into the screen, into the computer screen of the TV, and I want to pull that lawyer right out of it, or I want to call the lawyer or tap into it and tell them, stop, 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 <laughs> through my scream that they're doing it wrong or they're making a mistake. I want to talk about this, and I, there's some really good cross-examination stuff going on out there. There are some, some really good lawyering out there. There's some bad lawyering, too. <laughs> there's some really bad lawyering, but... I think one of the things that lawyers tend to forget when you're cross-examining a witness, when you're in court, you have to do more than just go back and forth with the witness. You need to create some drama. You have an opportunity to create some drama. You can create drama with just words like, but, or for, or then you can create some contrast. You have the opportunity to not pace around the whole courtroom and be a distraction, but you also have the opportunity to use things in the courtroom, to use things in the courtroom. You can use silence, for example. You can use the clock. You can use the, the hands on the, on the clock. You can take advantage of the fact that the witness is, is, is struggling to come up with an answer by just getting out of the way. You can do things in the court to enhance whatever the, the, the drama and the tension of the moment. If you've got a particular witness that you really want to, to cross-examine, a witness who deserves to be cross-examined, a witness who deserves to be exposed in court. And there are just, there are some lawyers who are particularly good at it. And there are some lawyers who are particularly bad at it. And I've watched a couple of trials. Um, I've watched a lot of trials, of course, but, but lately I've had the, the experience of watching some different trials. Um, and, and in part because I'm spending time um, with Linda Kinney Bodden on law and crime, and we're um, analyzing trials and they see so many trials, but you see some really good lawyer. And then you see some other types of lawyer. And this, and I want to talk about those because there's some lawyering out there right now that I'm watching in the, the William Husel trial that is fantastic. I mean, it is fantastic advocacy. And what the, the lawyers in that case, in particular, Diane Menashe and Jose Baez, who are a lead counsel for William Husel, who is in essence being accused, he's a doctor in the ICU at Mark Carmel who's accused of murder he is accused of giving lethal doses of medicine of fentanyl, norfentanyl, to patients who were in the ICU. This is an incredibly complex trial, and it plays on so many emotions. Anybody who's had a relative or a loved one or someone close to them who's gone through this type of treatment, who's suffered in the hospital, and you get to the end of days, we all want our, our loved ones to, to not suffer. We want them to not suffer. Think about when you watching someone who you love and, and cherish and care about and you're a loved one and you're like, oh my God, think about the things you say when you, you hear a friend or you hear someone who passed or the things that are said to you and someone beloved passes. Well, he's not suffering anymore. At least it's not 
hurting, died peacefully in his sleep. Because even the phrase that we hear about, the most common phrase when somebody passes away is what? RIP, rest in peace. The, the idea that somebody who's suffering and struggling in pain is now resting all harkens back, all takes us back to the idea that we don't want a loved one to suffer in pain when they're, when, 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 when they're in the hospital. People sometimes don't even, we can't even, we don't even know when they're in pain. We don't even know if they can't communicate to us if they're in pain. If they're intubated and they're on life support, we don't even know necessarily how much pain they're in. But we have to assume that they're in some kind of pain at some point, we can tell. So if someone is fighting through all of the, 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 the pain of illness, which brought him to the hospital in the first place, being intubated, having needles and objects and beeps and sounds and whatever else is going on, it's not as though they're just sitting there and feeling nothing. Sometimes you don't even know how much pain they're in. Anyone who has had a loved one go through this experience knows what I'm talking about. And this is why this trial is so important. Two warriors, Jose Baez and Diane Ashi, and they are fighting city hall, not just city hall. They're fighting county hall. They're fighting the state of Ohio and all the power and resources that they have to bring. They're fighting a hospital. I mean, with their millions upon millions and tens of millions of dollars. They're probably fighting insurance companies. They're fighting the staff, they're fighting patients, families, who at one point were behind Dr. Husel and now are often found that the hospital is blaming Dr. Husel, and so now they've switched sides. At one point, the patients were patients' families on the side of Dr. Husel. He's the greatest. He's a wonderful doctor. He's amazing. People were apparently signing petitions at one point. There were people signing their support for him. Then they get a call. Then they hear that he's being accused. Then they hear he's being investigated. Then the hospital in some document calls him a villain. Yes, they said, he's our villain. Villain? I didn't know villain was actually spelled scapegoat. People in the hospital identified him as pleasant. They identified him as helpful, knowledgeable, interested. He was a teacher. He devoted extra time. He was caring. All of these, these patients, families, they were supportive of Dr. Husel. And then along the way, he was accused, I think informally, and then the family that word that there was more formal allegations, people were pointing the finger at him. Then there were civil lawsuits and you know, civil lawsuits means potential dollar signs. So there's nothing wrong with suing except that you're talking about a deeply emotional subject. And there are people who are just looking for someone to blame. And so as opposed to blaming their illness, their loved one's illness, um, the fact that life is short, they then got word that people were talking about Dr. Husel, maybe insinuating that Dr. Husel was somehow not doing things properly. And then they got word that he was being called a villain, which apparently sounds like it means scapegoat. 
That's how I would argue the case. That's how Jose Baez and Diane Manasseh are arguing the case that he's a scapegoat and he's the person that they ultimately wanted to blame, that they wanted to point the finger at. And then you've got this. Ultimately, people start to think, you know, I can believe that my loved one was sick and dying and was going to die already, or I could believe the hospital and others, and I could accuse Dr. Husel of essentially being a agent in euthanasia, mercy killing, murder. And people started to put potential piles of money, or at least talk about how they could be sued. One of the things that I noticed in this particular, in this case is the state is just loading up with very powerful witnesses. And I want to point out a couple of things that Diane Manashi has done in cross-examination of two particular witnesses. She's used um, a visual, she's used logic, she's used mental imagery, and she's using sound. She's using the prosecutor's exhibits to to take their energy and to turn it all back to the jury. And she's doing it in a way that is entertaining the jury, that is building up to a point that's creating drama. And it is put, forcing the witnesses into a box, into a corner. There are some, and I can't stress this enough, this is very good cross-examination. I mean, there's an old saying about who the best cross-examiners were. One of the old sayings was the best cross-examiners were um, mothers who didn't go to law school. Mom, if you're out there. But, um, and one of the reasons is, is that mothers had that intuition. They knew how to build up some drama. They knew how to ask questions that they knew the answer to their child couldn't answer. So think about this. You know, mom is standing there and she's doing whatever she's doing and the kid walks in and walks, you know, behind mom or sits down at the table to have a glass of milk. And mom throws out one of those softball questions that the kid thinks is a softball, right? Softball. So where were you last night, Johnny? Oh, you know, I told you I'd be at, um, uh, at, at Bill's. I told you I'd be at Bill's house. And the mom's thinking like, mm-hmm, right. You told me you'd be at Bill's, but I didn't ask you where you told me you'd be. I asked where you were. Oh, I was at Bill's the whole night. You were there the whole night, right? And the kid's thinking like, yeah, mom, I was there the whole night. Bill from down the street. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell me about Bill's uh, where you were last night? No, ma. No, why? Okay. All right. And the reason why that's so important is that the reason why it's such a good cross-examination technique is because she's about to drop the bomb. And the questions she was asking were painting Johnny into a corner, just painting him into a corner. And that is particularly good cross-examination and few lawyers do it. And when you get the witness in the corner, you can just keep battering them as long as you want. And one of the things that when you get a witness in that moment, sometimes that witness will pause. They will pause. They, will, they won't be able to answer a question and they'll pause. And one of the things that you can do if you're the, the witness, if you're the, the cross-examiner, is you can just let the silence speak for you. You don't, remember, 
you're using your tone, you're using your volume, you're using your, um, your expression, you're using your hands, you can use hand gestures, you can raise your voice, you can lower your voice, you can pick up your cadence, you can slow your cadence down. You can do all those things together. You can use things in the courtroom and you can use what the witness is doing. If the witness chuckles, you could of course look and pause and if it appears feels appropriate, you could say something very polite or even not about the witness laughing or chuckling. You could, if the witness starts to get argumentative, you can either season that energy or you can actually take a step back and try to ask it again and draw attention to the witness being argumentative. You can draw it out. And if the witness pauses, you can use silence. You can use the silence in the courtroom it can be deafening. Think about what happens in a courtroom where there is, there's just silence. And one of the things that you can, you can do is where, for example, there's silence in a courtroom where the witness doesn't answer or is struggling to answer, you can make that point particularly clear. Why would you do that? Why would you want to make the point that the, why would you want to draw out that the, the witness is struggling, that the witness is taking way too long to answer that question? Let me tell you why you'd want to do that. When you have the opportunity to draw out the fact that the witness is, is not answering, not answering quickly, is taking his time, is taking too long. Remember how much time 10 seconds is, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, for example. Think about how that silence with nothing else happening in the courtroom. Think about what you're doing. You're using the jurors, your, the, the discomfort, the, the, the tension of, the, of the, the passage of time. I mean, think about going back to like high school and we sat there and you're looking at the clock at the very end of the day, you're like, oh my God, can you please move faster? Come on, clock, move faster. You're like, Oh, it hasn't moved. It's the same. Like I got five minutes left to go. And you think, of course, that five minutes will go by quickly. But five minutes can be an eternity. In a basketball game, it's an eternity. You're watching March Madness. It's an eternity. Think about a minute. You're like, come on, clock. 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 Like, oh! The reason why that is so effective in the courtroom is that where a witness is struggling to answer and pauses, one of the things that, that you can do, you want to do is, 
You want to take the communication, the conversation, you want to elevate it beyond just an exchange of words. You want the jurors to, there's so many words going by, like a ticker. Imagine a ticker, you know what I mean? Like just, just words and words and words. The jurors have to watch it and they can't keep track of it all. Even the best of jurors, even the most attentive jurors, even as, as you could call it, even a professional juror, they just can't keep all of that. It's not possible to keep all of that stuff in their head. It's not possible. But what they can do, what you can do, of course, is as you're you can make take these moments and you can sort of elevate them beyond the words, things that the jurors will remember. They'll remember if you pause and if there's silence. They'll remember a moment, for example, in the courtroom where you're sitting there and go, take as much time as you need. 10, 15, 20 seconds go by. That as a jurors say, sure, you want to look at that document? Take us, you, you can look anywhere you want. You can focus on page three, uh, sir, but feel free to read through the entire thing. And they're flipping back and forth, flipping back and forth, flipping, reading, flipping, reading, flipping back, reading, reading. Sometimes judges will try to get the witness out of that hole, but you just say, your, your honor, it's no, no issue. Take as much time as you need. And they're looking. And as they're looking, you know that they're getting redder and redder and redder. The sweat is starting to pour down their face. Their collar is starting to get wet. And they're trying to find the thing that they were sure is there or that they wanted to be there or they never thought they'd be called out on. And it is powerful. I've had cases where witnesses have cross-examined and they just have paused and made these dramatic faces like, or they wanna be argumentative and I'm, go ahead, be argumentative, argue away. Or they wanna be insulting, go ahead, insult. Wanna challenge me? It's no problem. I mean, this is, I got all day, you? And part of the reason is, is that you're trying to take moments where it's just an exchange of words and you're trying to build on top of that. You want the jurors to see things, to hear things, to hear sounds. You want jurors to have memories of these, of these witnesses that will be impactful of them. And those things have to transcend just words. In some of our cases, how about that, Mr. Fung? Think about, how about that, Mr. Fung? Remember the questioning by, of, I think, Dennis Fung in the O.J. Simpson case. How about that, Mr. Fung? The reason we remember, um, uh, we remember Barry Sheck doing that is that it was just those, those words. When you said he pointed, how about that? And he was pointing to a, a, a crime scene and said, oh, you wouldn't do that? You wouldn't do that? Well, how about that, Mr. Fung? And they kept pointing to that. And the reason they kept pointing to that is that the jurors then, their attention was drawn to that. And what they were looking at was inconsistent with what the witness had just testified to. And the witness could sit there and try to explain, but explaining is losing. If you're explaining, you're losing. Think about when um, uh, O.J. Simpson actually put the glove on. Put aside whether anybody thinks there's any drama or theatrics or, or anything like that going on. Just talk about the moment. You remember it. You remember it more than any of the questioning before and any of the questioning after. 
you wouldn't even remember what questions were specifically asked that day or asked at, at, at later on that day, but you remember the glove. You don't even remember what the, the lawyers were saying at that time, other than the fact that the glove, Chris Darden was sitting there and you could see the sweat. Marcia Clark was sitting there and she looked nervous, but you don't even necessarily remember that. You don't have to remember that. What you remember are not the words. You remember the visual image. You remember the imagery because images are lasting. You remember that. You can picture that. That's good cross-examination. That's excellent cross-examination when you can just remember, when you can, in the courtroom, create the images. You can create visual imagery, sound, where you can elevate above the baseline of just words. People go home when those things have a visceral effect, the discomfort of the witness being put in that position. The glove being tried on, people have a visceral reaction to that. And in and I want to show you two examples of that that are excellent pieces of lawyering in this extremely complicated but important case involving Dr. William Husserl. Diane Menashe is one of the lawyers who's cross-examining, excuse me, who's representing um, William Husserl. And Diane Menashe is one of the lawyers who is really expertly representing William Husserl. And William Husserl is accused of giving a, some patients, I believe, a thousand micrograms of fentanyl. And uh, doing that in a way which is um, uh, in a way that would cause the death of these patients. And what, what happens in this, this particular piece of cross-examination that I want to show you why it's so effective is that Diane Menashe, who's cross-examining a pharmacist in the case, um, she's going to point out that other doctors, other, uh, other uh, healthcare professionals have given patients the same amount or more of fentanyl. And the point she's trying to make is that the amount of fentanyl is not necessarily, no matter who testifies to it, indicative is not in and of itself problematic. Let's watch how she does that in this bit of cross-examination of pharmacists uh, in the case. And this is Diane Menashe, and this is one of my favorite clips in this case. Physician. Are you familiar with that physician name? I am not. In this point, Dr. Diane Menashe is pointing out that this is a physician other than Dr. William Husserl. Agree with me that that's not Dr. Husserl. That is not Dr. Husserl. Okay, I want to go to the ordered details. Could you tell the jury what is being ordered there? Yes, so the medication is fentanyl, and it looks like 2,494 micrograms? Wrong. What she's going to point out is significantly more than that. I'm sorry. Uh, it's 14,321 
0.2494 micrograms, right? Okay, it's hard to see the decimal point on mine, but yes, if that's an entire comma, then three digits and a decimal point, then yes, okay. 14,321.2494 micrograms. Because I sat here this morning and looked at... Now, do you hear that? Dr. Husel's accused of, what, a thousand micrograms? She's pointing out that this doctor ordered 14,321 and change micrograms. Do you hear the noise in the background? Listen. I'm sorry. Uh, it's 14,321.2494 micrograms, right? Okay, it's hard to see the decimal point on mine, but yes, if that's an entire comma, then three digits and a decimal point, then yes, okay. 14,321.2494 micrograms. Because I sat here this morning and looked at all these vials. We were asked about all the vials. I'm not even sure, Mr. Dresbach, if we could fit, if these carry 100 micrograms? 100 micrograms. So let's take 14,000 micrograms of fentanyl that was ordered by a doctor other than Dr. Husel, right? Correct. How many vials would we need up here? Do you see what she did there? So powerful. Compare the amount that Dr. Usel is supposed to have given that he's on trial for in part, put it up there on the board, then starts to go through pulling out vials out of a bag, click, 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 click. Uh, 140? 140 vials. And those That is powerful cross-examination right there. Those vials sitting there. The state is accusing Dr. William Husel of having killed a patient with this number. And she just put it all right out there, right for the jury to see, all out in the open. Click, 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 click and then compares that number to the number that's on the on the the die on the medical record 140 times were ordered for patient James Timmons that is correct could you tell the jurors the date when that that is powerful cross examination do you see that the jurors now they have this i remember this moment of the dozens of witnesses that have testified in this case to hours upon hours of cross-examination. I remember this moment in the trial. Want to know why I remember it? Because more than just my, more than just hearing an exchange of words, that word ticker that I'm talking about, I was, I, I, I saw the board. I saw the number. I knew the number was substantially larger than a thousand, but now it is seared into my brain. It's like seared in here. And it's seared in here as she kept on dink, 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 dink. And she took those vials that had been used by the prosecution. She took the bag, used them to point out that, you know what? They're saying that this was lethal. Except that this number doesn't even compare to the number that this other doctor gave. It is fantastic cross-examination because she's using, getting the jurors to use all of their senses. This is not just for the witness. She could have made this point without actually cross, without just, this is not just for the witness. This is not for the witness at all. 
This is drama for the jury. This is to take the, the conversation with words and to give it visual imagery. The difference between riding on something, saying a red fire truck, and then bringing out a fire truck and asking, telling the jurors, like a shiny red fire truck with a long ladder with the shiny chrome and the, the fire department insignia on the side and the shield and the lights on top and the firemen in their yellow in their yellow uniforms with their hats on, like the firemen hats with the Dalmatian in the front seat. That's visual imagery that sticks with people. So powerful, so incredibly powerful. So much more than just the words. I mean, this is not for the witness. If she wanted to just have this exchange with the witness, she could have said, think about the comparison and how boring and unmemorable it would be. Well, there have been doctors who have prescribed, uh, who've ordered amounts more than a thousand, right? Yes. For example, this patient that you treated, yes. And this patient was ordered to by, treated by another doctor, yes. And given an amount of 14,000 something, yes. That would not be as impactful as what she just did. What she did was incredibly impactful. This is like not third degree chest. This is like nth degree. Because the jurors are going to remember these vials up here. It is taking the state's evidence and the state's argument and it is throwing it right back in their face through one of their witnesses. But that's not the only, I want to give you another example of really powerful lawyering in this case. Again, Diamond Ashey, um, who represents William Hustle, Hustle is cross-examining Dr. Ellie, whose uh, his name is Dr. Wes Ellie. He's a state's medical expert. He was hired to come in and to um, uh, offer an expert opinion that Dr. Hussle's conduct uh, deviated from the norm, that it wasn't reasonable, that it wasn't rational, that it wasn't normal, that it wasn't acceptable, um, and that the amounts that he was giving this, these patients were excessive, and an excessive amount of fentanyl. He basically, he's one of those guys that came in and said, yeah, I'll look at it. And the argument, of course, here is that he's a, he's a doctor and he has a, the ability to, to, to come into court and to offer evidence and he has the ability to come into court and, um, and to testify. But in this case, the, the reason why he's an expert and experts have to be handled in a particularly in a particular way. And what Diane Menashe is going to do in this case is use the experts in an effort to establish that the witness is biased. And when I mean biased, I mean that he came into this case with an agenda. She's going to attempt to establish that he came into the case with an agenda, that he came into the case and didn't necessarily want to or chose not to review all the materials, that he um, addressed all variety of different things that he was... Uh, She's going to establish that this witness or try to establish that this witness, this extra witness was biased. Most of the time, you'll attempt to establish that an extra witness is biased through a variety of things, that they have a particular bias or an angle or an approach, but also sometimes about the amount of money that they receive, the amount of money they're being paid. But Diamond Ash is going to do it a little bit differently in this case, and it is really good stuff. 
what she's going to attempt to show is that this witness has a bias, that this expert witness in this case, that he has a bias, that his bias is that he happens to be someone who's associated or affiliated with rights of life, that he has an agenda, that he wants to um, eliminate, that he's received awards in the past from, uh, I, I believe, a right to life association or a right to life group, a pro-life group, and that he has an agenda and that he's coming to court to advance his agenda, to advance his beliefs, and not just rely on the science. And what she's going to do is turn the fee issue in a way against him. A lot of times they'll say, well, see, that expert witness got X amount of money and their opinions being bought and paid for. What she's going to do is attempt to do it, attempt to do it differently. What Diane Menashe is going to do, what she's going to do effectively, and I'm going to show you this clip in a second, is attempt to show with exhibits, with documents, and with the witness's own words and his own desire to attempt to appear as though he's, um, he's neutral and just here to report the science, what she's going to do is attempt to use this all against him and trap him. Diane Menashe, in this case, does an excellent job. This is Diane Menashe cross-examining um, this expert, Dr. Ellie, in this case, and this is some really good stuff. I mean, this is good stuff. So it's hard to pick up where we left off, but I'm going to give it my best effort here. Okay. Um, I want to circle back, if I can, um, to your fee agreement in this case. I know you had mentioned um, the initial contract you had with the prosecutor's office uh, when you were first retained. Do you remember that uh, yes. line of questioning? And you had indicated that you had submitted an invoice for $10,000, correct? Correct. And that invoice was for work done up to and through um, the date of your report. Is that fair to say? Yes, 20, 20 hours. 20 hours. And the date of your report is March 3rd of 2020. Is that correct? Yes. So I want to break down the 20 hours. Uh, and it's 20 hours because for out-of-court work, you get paid $500 an hour. That's right. Uh, how long do you this guy should know. Look at his eyebrows. Like he is looking over the top. He is trying to anticipate where is she going with this? <laughs> I don't care how he looks right now. I don't care what look he's trying to give. He cannot duck these questions. Watch. That it took you to dictate your report. I really don't know because I did it as I went along. So I would review a case and review the details of it to where I felt like I understood what had happened clinically with that person, and then I would dictate the report. And so I did not keep a, a, a log of, of each individual time and add those up. So stop there. That's preposterous. So if his agreement was that he was going to work hours, then he didn't work hours. He just decided to willy-nilly kind of throw some number together. Like, okay. But... That's not as bad as it gets. It's worse. So, so, just did it over a period of time and did, a, did the report one, one patient at a time. And fair to say that the report, uh, as it was done, which covered 25 patients, was in length 36. 
36 pages long. Does that sound yes. accurate? And the uh, font on each page is, is seemingly less than 12 font, if, if, if you would agree with me on that. I, I don't know what the font size is. It looks like about 10 to me, 10 okay. or 11. But it's 36 pages, and there's a lot of words on a page. Yeah. Um, and we know from your... This is... Diane Menashe, and she is about to deliver a combination knockout blow to Dr. Wes Ellie. Watch this. I know you had mentioned um, the initial contract you had with the prosecutor's office uh, when you were first retained. Do you remember that uh, yes. line of questioning? And you had indicated that you had submitted an invoice for $10,000, correct? Correct. And that invoice was to and through um, the date of your report. Is that fair to say? Yes, 20, 20 hours. 20 hours. And the date of your report is March 3rd of 2020. Is that correct? Yes. So I want to break down the 20 hours. Uh, and it's 20 hours because for out-of-court work, you get paid $500 an hour. That's right. Trapped. He just trapped himself. She trapped him, he trapped himself. The trap is set, watch. Uh, how long do you estimate that it took you to dictate your report? I really don't know because I did it as I went along. So I would review a case and review the details of it to where I felt like I understood what had happened clinically with that person, and then I would dictate the report. And so I did not keep a, a, a log of, of each individual time and add those up. I just did it over a period of time and did, a, did the report one, one patient at a time. Do you, you see his body language there? He's trapped. He is nervous. He is worried. This is a guy who put on his glasses and look at the computer and he turned to the jury and delivered some kind of confident answer. But did you see what he was doing there? Watch what he's doing over the course of the last, look at, I'm going to show you this. I'm going to do it without sound so you can see what he's doing. Look, here he goes. Looking down. He's looking down. He's trying to answer. Nervous. Here goes the chair swinging, chair swinging, looking over at the jury, trying to make eye contact with them. They probably really aren't looking back. And now he's going to talk to them and he's going to now swing and he's going to look off in the distance and swinging the chair, swinging the chair. Now he's looking down, not making eye. Now he's looking down, mm -hmm, looking down, swinging the chair. This guy is doing everything other than to do this and to, you know, to mop his brow with a handkerchief because he knows that's body language. And the jurors are probably, at least I'm picking up on it. I presume the jurors are, but Diane Menashe is about to really close in and close in on him hard. Watch this. Was in length 36 pages long. Does that sound yes. accurate? And the uh, font on each page is, is seemingly less than 12 font, if, if, if you would agree with me on that. I, I don't know what the font size is. It looks like about 10 to me, 10 okay. or 11. But it's 36 pages, and there's a lot of words on a page. Yeah. Um, and we know from your... 
20 minus four, you can feel the, I want to say the noose tightening, but it's tightening. 20 minus four. Now he's got 16 hours. You build 20 minus four to prep the prosecutors. Now you're down to 16. Watch what Menashe does with this. And then we know that you were provided 25 patient files, which you also reviewed as part of that 20 hours. Is that correct? Yep. So I want to drill down on, uh, we've got the four hours with the prosecutor, so that leaves us with 16 remaining hours. Um, I know you can't say with certainty, but uh, fair to say I could, I could estimate that dictating the report even took one to two hours in total. Okay, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. So now we're down 16. Now we're down to uh, 15 or 14. 15 or 14. 15 or 14. And this guy is about to get waylaid with the exhibits. And so we're down to 14 hours of time. Yep. You see what she's doing now? She's using these binders. Just the binders piled up there because now they're down to 14 hours. And the jurors are looking at those binders because I'm looking at those binders and you're looking at those binders. The witness is looking at those binders. Diana's looking at those binders. The judge is likely looking at the, those binders. We're all looking at these binders. Why are we looking at them? She has got our attention. She has our attention during this cross-examination because he's using more than words. And here's how she uses these binders expertly. But at the time, you not only had these 14 patient binders to review, but you had an additional nine patient binders. Right. And just so we're clear, if, if anyone's counting the binders, there's patients such as Joanne Belisari that You see what she did with those? The first one, she hefted up like it was extra heavy to lift. <clears throat> Put it in this hand. And then the other one. <clears throat> and then opened it up and fanned it to show she's using the appearance of the weight of these things to show how difficult it must be to have to lift them, open them. And then she's showing the pages. This is not for the witness's benefit. This is for the juror's benefit. And why? What is the impact of it? It's not just words. She's doing this because in the day and age of Twitter and Facebook and social media and streaming and, 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 and how we want to see and hear things, she wants the jurors in real time to, not, this has nothing to do with this witness specifically. The witness could be, doesn't matter. She's doing this to show the, the, the jurors. They already see these things. They see them. There is nothing that, this is powerful stuff because the witness's words, they, either, they don't matter if he agrees that, oh yeah, those are big documents and they look heavy. Yeah, I mean, what else is he going to say? Oh no, they're not heavy. They're not that complicated. They're not that thick. 
he has to agree that these are heavy, thick binders with thousands of pages. And she's emphasizing that. And here's why. It's really good stuff. That's not accurate. Okay, and it's not accurate because my math is wrong? No, your math is good, but what you have to understand is that I don't do this for a living, and I feel guilty for charging the full number of hours that I actually spend on this work. Um, $10,000 was just the maximum amount that I could, in good conscience, bill for this. So I spent way more hours on this than 20 hours. It takes Doctor, an it takes an. What Diane Manassi just did here with this particular question, what she just did was literally point out to the jurors, put it to the, to the witness. She didn't really give the witness an opportunity to, to say much. She just did the math. Think about this. She just did the math. Let's go back and hear her question because it's a really artful way artful way of crossing. Really, no, that's not accurate. Okay. Let's go back and hear the specific. Have like two binders. Yeah. And a substantial number of pages in each binder. Yeah. So if we take 14 remaining hours divided by 25 patients, fair to say you're spending about 35 to 40 minutes reviewing each patient file. That's like asking him, when did you, after the seventh time or after the sixth time, when did you stop beating your wife? It's that kind of question. It's really a good question. Think about the question that she asked him. It is a, she's doing just the math and she's putting it to him. So all he can really do is to say, no, no, I, I spent no. She's taking the number. 14 remaining hours, 25 binders, doing the math and saying that, so you 25 patients, so you have um, X number of our minutes per patient. That's simple math. That's the simple math. And he can just putting it out there. Doesn't matter what is in. If he says yes, he's looks terrible. He says yes to that question. Yeah, I just all I did. I just spent a few minutes with each of those binders. I'm a fast reader. I, I went to Elaine Wood and I can do that kind of speed reading. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm really good. Or oh no, 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 no. The, the stuff I needed was already highlighted for me by the prosecutor or something else. He can't say any of that. What we're not talking about speed reading. We're talking about the type of record review that requires you read and analyze and take notes and think about it and combine and, and compare and contrast all of that. So he knows he can't say, yes, you're right. I only spent a few minutes with each file. He can't say no, or can he? Um, not really, no, that's not accurate. Okay, and it's not accurate because my math is wrong? No, your math is good, but what you have to understand is that I don't do this for a living, and I feel guilty. Did you, she didn't, when he said, no, that's not accurate, she didn't say why. Because it would give him a chance to answer her question. What she did instead was so smart. She asked him a question about, because my math is wrong? 
And so he then had to get a bit argumentative. And he's now going to attempt to answer that question outside. He's going to answer this question outside of uh, going to not be responsive. No, your math is right. That really is the only answer you can give. Why? Because my math is wrong? No, your math is right. Your math is good. But now he's going to try to stray past that and offer some explanation about how he's a do-gooder and he's here just to do good and he's here to do good and he didn't have the conscience to bill to, to bill fully and he didn't have the conscience to, he didn't know what to bill, so he just built that and she's going to wait for this answer, she's going to try to, to stop him for a moment and then she's going to hit him with another solid punch. For charging the full number of hours that I actually spend on this work. Um, $10,000 was just the maximum amount that I could in good conscience bill for this. So I spent way more hours on this than 20 hours. It takes, an, it takes an immense amount of time to go through these. <laughs> She's just going to jab him. You didn't agree to do this case pro bono, correct? Meaning for free. So if you're such a do-gooder, you could have done it for free. You could have done it pro bono. You could have said you were doing it because not because you just felt like it was it, taking any money was inappropriate. You could have done that, right? You didn't do that, did you, doctor? No, I asked for $500 an hour. And in addition to $500 an hour, as part of your contractual agreement, was any time in court was $750 an hour, correct? Yes, this is the only time I've ever been in court, but that's what I decided ahead of time would be uh, time and a half for court. So I've never done this before. And your uh, pro bono, you understand that means that for free, right? Yeah, I understand what pro bono means. Okay. So, so she's, she's just taking his answers and she's just turning them back out and throwing them. Every answer she gets, he, he gives her, she is catching, putting this hand and throwing it right back. How? He wanted to sell. Oh no, 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 no! I didn't. No, oh, no. I spent way more time with the with the the files than that. I just couldn't keep track. And if I did keep track, I know it was way more than whatever I built. Way more, because if I just only spent 20, 30 minutes with those thousands of pages per 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 patient file, you guys would all think that I came in here with an agenda that I didn't really review it, that I was biased, that I was. Just I, can't, I, I, I looked only for certain things, right? You can't answer that way. So he has to try to say, well, I spent way more time with this, way more, way more. And she's like, way more. And he goes, oh, well, you know, I just didn't have the conscience to charge more than that. So I didn't. I would have felt guilty doing that. And she's like, but pro bono, you could have done it pro bono. You could have done it for free if you were such a do-gooder or this good Samaritan you're trying to paint yourself as. There's no middle ground here, doctor. There's no middle ground. And he says, well, and she goes, well, but you are charging for trial. So not just that, not only you are you claiming that you, that you couldn't charge your fee, you couldn't charge the hours that you worked, which she's conveying to the jury, the message is that that's not true. She's then going above that and saying, okay, well, besides that, what you're now arguing to the jury, what you're now trying to claim is that you're a do-gooder, you didn't charge the, the appropriate amount of the full amount of hours, but you're charging more for trial. Which is it? Can't be all. And she has just trapped him. Signed a contract with the state of Ohio for that 500 and 750. And then you signed a second contract, did you not? Yes. And the fee cap on that second contract, is it not? Yes, but I don't, I don't, I didn't care what the fee cap is. Yes, I guess it's $30,000. I don't okay. even remember what the fee cap is. Well, you the contract 
Wait, you don't remember the fee cap? This guy is like sinking lower and lower. If he could spin that chair down through the bottom of the, uh, to below that, the, the, whatever this thing is here, this railing on the witness stand, he would. And what is she trying to prove? She's trying to prove that he's biased, that he's not being truthful about the, his, his review of the records, that he reviewed what the state wanted him to review. She's trying to make the claim that he is not believable. He's biased and he's not being truthful. Correct? Yes. report. She's about to twist the knife in even deeper. Watch this. Somebody should throw in the towel, but you can't because this guy is going to try to dig in deeper. I mean, this is good stuff. Any of the prosecutors on this case and, and talk no. about your testimony. No. Then, um, and you, if you remember, then um, I want to go here <laughs> to your indication, this line right here where you indicate her prior pain was effectively managed with less potent opioids, medications more appropriate for the elderly patient population. Do you see that last sentence of the paragraph? Yes. Okay, we're gonna talk about that. Okay. with respect to Standard Castle. Okay. So showing you this uh, state's exhibit 30, um, this is your summary. I mean, that's great cross-examination. Great. I can keep going with this guy, but that's great cross-examination. He just sounds biased, doesn't he? Like this is a guy who's claiming that, I mean, she just trapped him and he trapped himself and just got cornered and got pummeled in the corner. I mean, like someone needs to throw the flag, like throw the flag. 
throw it, throw the flag, throw the flag. And the reason why it is so powerful is not just that she did it in cross, she showed him the exhibits. She showed him those documents. The juror, that image is seared now, seared into their minds. He could say whatever he wants. How does he recover from that? I'm sure he'll try, and I know the state's going to try, but that is, that, that's how you elevate just an exchange of words and not just using something more. You use more than words. You've got a picture, a document. You've got his report. You've got his contract. You have the number of hours, his willingness to volunteer, and then you add to it by... Uh, heft of these documents these binders i mean that is powerful stuff diane Manashi just i just gave you two examples and i'm going to give you more as the days go on but two powerful examples of how you use exhibits physical exhibits presence change in voice your body language heft the witness's own words how you can use all of that silence, how you can use all of that to impeach even the most powerful witness. And remember, it's the most, the most, I guess, expert type witness, how you can turn those witnesses into witnesses that, that help you and help your client. That is killer cross-examination type stuff right there. I mean, that is good stuff. This guy was supposed to be like their, their, their expert, their, their guy, their guy that they could count on to come in and save the day. And damn, and Ashy just took those binders and piled them up in front of him. Went, just took those binders and stacked them on top of him. That is great stuff. Left him in there babbling about his fee and number. I mean, just great stuff. So um, that is killer cross-examination. That's the kind of stuff that I am impressed with. That's the kind of stuff that needs to happen more and more and more important, good stuff there. That is Jose Baez and Diane Manashi in the trial of William Husel, which is currently ongoing. This is Neil Rockine. This is the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Tune in again, tune in some more as we just continue to show you more and more good stuff in the courtroom, um, more and more powerful cross-examination, more and more killer cross-examination.